Words have power. The Bible is full, absolutely full of instructions given to you and to me as to how we should use our tongues, how we should speak. And uh, if I think we're honest, most of us probably don't live up to those a lot of the time. And this undergirds this thing we see at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, and that is that words are important. Indeed, words are at the center of creation. God spoke the universe into existence. And so our words matter so much so that God instructs Christians in particular that your yes should be yes and your no should be no. You shouldn't have to give special um, swears or oaths that people know that you are telling the truth. Words mark our character. With our tongues, we can either advance truth or we can advance lies. With our speech, we can either build people up or we can tear them down. And this goes back to this, or what you saw with what Silas read, an odd combination of verses, Genesis 1 and 2. But throughout these first several chapters of Genesis, you see this repeated theme of the God who speaks, who uses words. And you see these two different ways there in those two sections read. God speaks creationally, brings things into existence, and instructions. Don't eat of that tree. Don't do that. Do do this. The universe came into existence by the power of his word. And it continues to exist by the power of his word. And his word defines what is right, what is good, and what is true. And as those made in the image of God, you and I also speak. That's what marks us off from everything else in creation. We are made in the image of a holy God. And like that holy God, we communicate. And our words matter. As a pastor, I use my words to preach sermons. I use words to write articles. I even use words to bring in new things into existence. What do you mean by that? I've stood behind, well, maybe not behind the pulpit, but I've stood in front of a room like this before, and I have a couple exchange vows, and then I declare them to be husband and wife. And something that was not there before then comes into existence through words. Not entirely like God, but in other ways. As a citizen, and I'm sure many of you have done this too, you've signed contracts, you've signed mortgages, you've signed loan bills, and through words we bind and loose new realities. This is how the universe works. Words, speech, and communication matter. And as humans, we are uniquely gifted and accountable for how we use those words. I think one of the most haunting passages in the Bible is when we are instructed that every careless word that we utter will be held in judgment. In the social media age, we should take that to heart. God cares about how we speak because in our speech we reflect his goodness or we attack his character. As a husband, my words can either bring life or death to my marriage. The same for my wife. As a father, my words will bring life or death to my children. I can either build them up or I can tear them down. As a pastor, my words will bring life or death to you as a congregation. The right word at the right time brings comfort and healing and reconciliation. The wrong words bring death, division, destruction, chaos, and more ugliness. We see this throughout history. History itself is moved more by words than wars or rulers or politicians or slogans. 
You can think back to some of the great speeches in history. FDR, at the height of World War II, said, you have nothing to fear but fear itself, something we could be reminded of today. This last September, as we marked the anniversary of 9-11, I sat down at the kitchen table with my boys, and I, I pulled up the speech of, of President Bush at Ground Zero. I think it was three or four days after the attack. And there he was, standing in the midst of all the rubble with the first responders, trying to rescue people trapped under the debris. And he had this bullhorn, and he was trying to give a speech, and they kept yelling at him, we can't hear you, we can't hear you. And then he yells back into the microphone, can you hear me now? And they all cheer. And then he said these words, the people who knocked these buildings down will hear from all of us soon. I sat there with my boys, and Emily goes, you're tearing up. I go, shh, don't tell anyone. But words matter. They brought me back to that moment as a teenager as I watched these things happen, trying to make sense of this world, a world my boys have lived in but didn't really experience the way I did. And so it's no small thing that you see at the very beginning of Scripture a God who speaks. We often rush over this. We take it for granted. God speaks. He, he declares things to be. But this sets the stage for everything that follows. So this morning I want us to see a few things. I want you to see the necessity of God speaking. And we're going to see the types of God's speech, the character of his speech. And then finally we'll end by looking at Christ as the word of God. So first, the necessity of God's speech. As Genesis records, the universe exists because God said, let it be so. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be water, and there was water. Let there be earth, and there was earth and ground. If God does not speak, you do not exist. That's how necessary him communicating is. Without him speaking, there is no light, no darkness, no mountains, no oceans, no animals, and no us. It was necessary for him to speak, for if he remained silent, then the only thing that would be would be the triune God. If he does not communicate, then there is nothing else. And thus, words and speech and communication are central to being human, to be like God. Think about the importance of communication in your relationships. Not just bad communication versus good communication. What if you said nothing at all to your spouse? What would happen? Your marriage would die. What would your parenting look like if you never communicated with your children? What would your friendships look like if you never spoke to your friends? You stop being friends. Words are necessary and needed, for without them, things cease to exist. And in the same way, the universe exists and continues to exist because God spoke. And he still speaks. The fact that God speaks demonstrates that he has a caring and intimate relationship with his creation. Just like I talk to my wife, she talks to me, it shows that we, we care for one another. God speaking creation into existence shows that he is not detached. He didn't just start the universe, wind it up like a a top and spin and just let it go. God's relationship with the universe is intricate. It is intimate. It is not some machine that runs on its own. 
God speaking is also necessary for there to be revelation. That is for us to know things. When God speaks, He speaks to be heard. He speaks to be understood. He doesn't speak in such a way as that you and I cannot come to know Him. As creatures, all of our knowledge is revealed knowledge. That means you don't come to know anything on your own. Everything you know is given to you and revealed to you by God Himself. Whether that is through creation, through the Spirit, by the Son, or by Scripture, everything that you have and that you know comes through God revealing it to you. How different is that uh, than, than our age? Especially you children, young adults. You live in an age that is constantly telling you that you can discover and define for yourself your own truth. You can reveal your own truth to yourself. And the Bible says you can't even know that there is light or there is darkness unless God tells you it is so. That everything is dependent upon Him revealing it. Put it another way, you live in God's universe. You can't escape Him revealing Himself to you. But we are trained in subtle ways to replace God with ourselves. So we try to find truth apart from Him, and instead we get lies, we get anxiety, division, uncertainty, violence, and death. So it is necessary that God speaks, and speak He does. How does God speak? What are the types in which God speaks? Well, He speaks in at least two ways both of which we see here in those opening verses that were read. And those two ways are general revelation and special or saving revelation. General revelation is God revealing himself through his creation. He said, let there be light. And the fact that light exists shows you that God himself exists. Another special revelation. God revealing himself through the spirit, by the prophets, and chiefly by scripture, which is Genesis. You read in Genesis 1, 1 and following about general revelation from special revelation. From the very words of God. Let's dive into that a little bit more. General revelation is called such because it is generally available to every person who's ever lived. That is, you live in a, a created universe. And this means that you are confronted daily with the revelation of God. From the rising of the sun, to your heart beating, to your rationality, to your senses, all of it declare that God exists. Sociologists will refer to this as that every person is born, as far as they can tell, every person is born with a predisposition to believe that God exists. It's only as you get older that you convince yourself that he doesn't. It is natural, as you live in God's world, to believe that there is a God who created everything. The Bible speaks about this in Psalm chapter 19. It says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The heavens declare, they proclaim, day to day, second to second, that this is God's universe. That it exists and it functions. The food you ate over Thanksgiving declares the glory of God. The fact that it tastes good declares the glory of God. 
And so the natural question becomes, well, Levi, if that is so, why do so many people not believe in him? Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 1. He writes these words. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul's point here is really straightforward. Is that God is revealing himself constantly, but we have this tendency to take that revelation and to push it down, to suppress it. Why do we suppress it? Because of our unrighteousness. Put it another way. People don't believe in God, not because there's not enough evidence, but rather because there's something they want instead of God. It's a moral problem. It's not a knowledge problem. People don't want God because then they have to be accountable to God. And there's something they would rather do than obey Him. And so Paul says, we are without excuse. There are no grounds for believing that God doesn't exist. As we've seen the last couple weeks as we've walked through this, the belief that all life came from non-life is absolutely absurd and scientifically impossible on its face. You can't get that. There's special pleading from scientists, well, we have life here, so we know that's how it happened. No, it doesn't work that way, and you know it. Some of them are honest enough to admit that. It's an act of faith. To believe that you can have order, meaning, purpose, the scientific method, love, personality, and so much more from an impersonal beginning plus time and plus chance is an absurd leap of faith. A greater leap of faith than that God exists. We are without excuse. The evidence is overwhelming. And yet, we exchange the creator for the creation. That's general revelation. Everyone has access to it, but it's not enough to say it. You can know that a God exists, but you can't know really who that God is. And so we have special revelation. Special revelation is saving. Is that you need to know more information than you can garner from creation to be saved. Because salvation requires that your sins be paid for. You cannot learn that Jesus died for your sins by looking at a rock. Or by looking at your heart. Or by looking at the beauty of creation. And so God speaks. And he provides further definition and boundaries and so much more. We read uh, Genesis 2, 16 through 17. And God says to Adam, don't eat from this tree. Don't do it. If God doesn't say that, Adam doesn't know not to eat from that tree. So he speaks so that Adam would know what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do. In the same way, God still speaks to us through Scripture. And he says, this is the right way, this is the wrong way. He declares eternal, unchanging truths. And thus he reveals to himself in a saving way. He defines what our problem is, sin, and he defines what the only solution is, Jesus Christ, his death in our place. 
And that type of revelation is necessary for anyone to be saved. Paul again, Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How? They can't. If God doesn't reveal himself, if the gospel message isn't given to man, and if man does not go out into the world and say, this is the good news, then no one would be saved. Because no one would hear of Jesus and no one would believe in him. Thus, special revelation is necessary. And God speaks to us by his word and by his spirit, so that you might know him in a saving way. Those are the two ways God speaks. What is the character of his speech? Now this conversation, we could spend all day doing. But I'm just going to give you five. Five characteristics of God's speech. The first is this. God's speech is creative. As God declares things, they come into being. Right? The universe, the stars, the galaxies, the atoms, the quarks, all those things came into existence because God said, let it be so. When he speaks, reality is formed. And when he speaks, things come into existence. And that includes you. Why do you exist? Because at some point when God had his plan for all of human history and he spoke it into existence, you were a part of that plan. And he spoke you into existence. Second, God's speech is effective. It does what he intends it to do. Always. When God said, let the earth bring forth vegetation, it brought forth vegetation in the exact manner, volume, and variety that God wanted it to be. His words always accomplished his, his desired intention. You and I don't have that luxury. Sometimes I enter a situation and I think if I say this, I'll make the situation better and I make it worse. <laughs> that never happens with God. His word always goes the way he wants it to go. And so he accomplishes his desired will through speaking. And nothing can thwart that plan. That's where you go, well, well, Levi, then why do sometimes we not listen to his word? God tells us in Isaiah 55, he says this. He says of his own word, it shall not return void. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. His word never returns void. It is a living and active word. It softens hearts and it hardens hearts. And that's God's purpose in speaking. Both of them. It moves and affects wills. And it is never wasted. If you are in Christ today, the only reason you are is because God effectually called you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. He said, you will believe, and he gave you a new heart through declaring that, so that you would believe. By the same power he created the universe, he speaks new life into people. So there's no room for boasting, except in him. Third, his words are truth. They're not just true, but his words are truth. When God speaks, they're not only accurate words, 
but they define what reality is. They are the measuring stick of what is right and what is wrong. He calls the light day and the dark night, or the, the, the dark night. He owns it, and he defines his creation. He says creation is good, therefore creation is good. This means that as God speaks, and he speaks audibly, he speaks through his special revelation, it gives definition to his general revelation, that is creation. Sometimes uh, people mix up this doctrine, and they say that general revelation is at least on par with special revelation, but what they really mean is they want to treat general revelation, their interpretation of it, as higher than scripture. You don't know about general revelation without scripture. You don't have the category for it without scripture. Yes, God has two books of creation in Scripture, but Scripture is the higher authority. And so God speaks truth. And He tells us what is real and what is a lie. What is good and what is evil. At the heart of God forbidding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, why does He do that? I don't believe, I could be wrong on this, but I don't believe He says, don't eat that tree. Because by digesting that fruit, they would know that evil exists. There's not some magical property in the fruit that all of a sudden they experience evil. Rather, merely by saying, you can't eat that, God set up a test for man. Why did he set up that test? doesn't matter. He's God. He has the authority to say, don't do that. And it is by disobeying his definition of truth that man enters into sin. What God says is good is good, and what he says is evil is evil. God's standards are the standards of the universe. Again, you don't get more countercultural than that today. You live in a world that God gets to define what is real. The problem is, is you can identify as whatever you want but you are still stuck living in God's universe. And you will run headfirst into his wall again and again and again. Because a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. You can't escape reality. You don't get to define it. God does. Fourth, God's word is authoritative. By that, I'm referring primarily to scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read this. That all of scripture is breathed out by God... And it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Why is God's word authoritative? Because it's breathed out by him. It's spoken by him. And then it becomes the standard by which we can reprove and correct and encourage one another. I don't get to tell you what you should do because Levi thinks it's the right thing to do. But rather that God has given you his authoritative word so that we can all measure ourselves and correct and rebuke one another by the standard of his word. As the Reformers taught, Scripture is the highest authority on earth because it is breathed out by God. There is no higher court of appeals. There is no pope or church history on par with the authority of Scripture. Because it alone is breathed out by God. Fifth, God's word is sufficient. Again, primarily referring to Scripture here. If you continue on in 2 Timothy 3, it says that God gives you this so that the man or woman of God may be wholly equipped for every good work. 
God does not leave you blind and in the dark to figure out your life and what you need to do and how you should live. If you go back and you look at the pagan religions of old, some of which are resurfacing today, the problem they had is they had no idea what God expected of them. So they would practice things like divination and, and animal sacrifice and seers and all these things so that they might know, what does God actually really want from me? You don't have that problem. God has spoken so that you might know and that you have all the revelation you need. It is sufficient. Put it another way. You don't need a loud, booming voice to tell you what, how to live. You don't need a writing in the sky or handwriting on the wall because God has spoken. And the sad reality is, is that we often crave that God would just give us some special sign while we neglect the words he's given us. Well, just, just tell me what to do. Give me a sign from heaven. God has given you his word. Study it. Obey it. Our last point for today is that Jesus Christ is the word of God. The wonder of studying scripture is the variety in which the Bible uses the word, word. You have God speaking words, creating things. You have God's word in scripture. And then you have Jesus Christ as the very word of God himself. John chapter 1 starts with those famous words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John is intentionally bringing you back to Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning. And as you work your way throughout John 1 and Genesis 1 side by side, God speaks the universe into existence, and you see that Jesus is that word by which all of the universe comes into existence. The first thing God creates is let there be light. We read that Jesus is the light of the world in John 1. Jesus is the revelation of God par excellence. If you want to know God, you need to know Christ, the Word, the revelation of God in the flesh. So we have this marvelous picture that Christ is the chief and full in perfect representation of God on earth. That the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And so we have these parallels of everything we've just talked about. This is what the word of God does. And then Jesus does all of those things throughout his earthly ministry. Jesus, as the word, brings new life and new creation. The theme in John 1 is that a new creation is breaking into this world through Jesus becoming, through the Son becoming flesh, adding a human nature to himself. And so Jesus, as he walks around uh, this creation, he reverses the curse by the power of his voice again and again. He commands the seas and the waves to be still, and they be still. He sees someone possessed by demons. He says, get out, and the demons get out. He sees someone dead. There's Lazarus dead in the tomb for four days, and Jesus walks up to the tomb, and he says, live, and Lazarus lives. By the power of his word. The word of God speaking words of power. We also read in the Gospel of John that Jesus as the incarnated word declares himself to be the way and the truth and the life. If you want truth, Jesus is the embodiment of that truth. He is the source of God's wisdom. The standard and giver of truth. Jesus, as the incarnated word, is also the authority over everything. 
Word of God is authoritative. Jesus, as the Word, has authority. So much so that in Philippians we read that one day every knee on earth and in, or in heaven and in earth will bend down to Jesus and say, He is Lord. That He is the authority. You don't bend your knee to someone unless you're saying, That guy's in charge. And Jesus, as the incarnated Word, is also the source of salvation and grace. Again, John 1. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. As the gospel goes forward, we see that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And finally, we read, as you read your Bible, that the Word of God, Scripture, is ultimately about the Word of God, Jesus. Matthew 7, John 5, Luke 24, that Jesus Christ is at the center of Scripture. That if you want to know what Scripture means, you have to know Jesus. If you read Colossians 1, you see that the creation also all belongs to Jesus. The byproduct of the creative Word of God. All of this revolves around the Word, Jesus Christ. So I'll say it again. Christ is the Word of God par excellence. And so we are called to worship Him, to follow Him, and to obey Him. As we move into Christmas this year, I encourage you to praise God because He speaks. Praise Him for His Word, Scripture, to praise Him for creating, and to praise Him for Jesus Christ, the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we pause this morning to offer you thanks that you spoke the universe into existence and that you are redeeming that universe through the sending of your Son. We pray, Lord, that as we remember his birth, as we remember his life, that you would strengthen us by your grace and by your truth, that we would come to love Jesus more and that we would trust in your goodness in providing him for us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.